Well, good afternoon, friends. It's Sunday the 1st of August, and as you might know, South East Queensland is in a hard lockdown for a couple of days, and that meant that we were unable to meet this morning for church as usual, and it was just too short notice to pull a live stream together. So doing the next best thing, we're going to have today's sermon as a podcast, and we hope that you're able to use the printed service outline at home uh, on your own or with your family or maybe even on a Zoom call with some people. Uh, to spend time in God's Word and praying together. We did that as a family this morning. We took the, the printed order of service and we, we prayed through it and we read the Bible readings. We even sang the songs together and we, we chatted through some of the discussion questions. And we really had a great time together as a family. Now, because we haven't had a service today, I just want to make you aware for next Sunday, God willing, everything's back to normal. We'll certainly pray that happens. But next Sunday after the service, we've got our Next Steps pre-membership course kicking off um, for anyone who's interested in becoming a church member. We were going to actually have a, a, a membership reception in our service this morning, which we've had to postpone. But we'd love you to consider becoming a, or taking that next step of gospel partnership with us and joining us uh, for four weeks from the 8th of August. Uh, it's just an hour after morning tea each of those four Sundays to learn a bit more about us as a church, what's important to us, and what it actually means to take that next step of gospel partnership with us by becoming a church member. Um, You should have seen the email or the Facebook update about that and how you can sign up to be part of that. For now, though, we're going to get into our third message in our Isaiah series. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 5, reading from verse 1 to 30. And seeing as we are stuck at home, I'm going to ask Melissa if she will come and read that part of God's word for us. Please turn there in your Bibles right now and uh, have it open as Melissa reads for us. The reading is from Isaiah, chapter 5, verse 1 to 30. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that there rain no more rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold an outcry, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses, without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts. 
but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honoured men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst, and therefore Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revellers, and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomad shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them for the ends of the earth, from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions they roar, they growl, and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day, like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. Well, let's get into our passage for today. We're in Isaiah chapter 5 that Melissa just read for us, and it'd be great if you could join me now as we pray. Father God, we do pray that as we read your word now, you would convict us of its truth that you will teach us what matters to you and expose those areas of our hearts that need your work done on them. Father, help us to hate our sin and love Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I am a very sentimental person. My wife, Melissa, knows this about me. 
I've got a box at home that is full of t-shirts from concerts and events that I've been to, which I'll probably never wear again. But I just can't throw them out. I've got another box that's full of random key rings and ticket stubs and other bits and pieces that I'm sure were significant once upon a time, but I can't remember where they're all from. And still, I just, I, I just can't bring myself to throw them out. And worst of all, as a kid, I would keep Easter eggs for months because the occasion and having a chocolate egg or wrapped in shiny foil was actually more significant to me than getting that chocolate in my face. So it would sit in my cupboard for ages after Easter. See, I'm so sentimental that I keep things long past the point where they're actually useful to me. But the God of the Bible is not at all sentimental. In other words, he's not driven by his feelings of nostalgia or driven by the warm fuzzies in the way that he acts and the way that he does things. And we see this quite clearly in the fifth chapter of Isaiah. Because in this chapter, we see a a God who will judge sin, even in his own chosen people, the people he's loved and protected and blessed and cared for and made promises to, invested in and endured with for generations. He's not going to turn a blind eye or gloss over their sin just because he's got a history with them or because they used to be special to him. You know, this is a scary thing to face up to about the God of the Bible, and especially about how we expect him to treat us. But it's also a good thing, as we're going to see a little bit later. Now, when we come to Isaiah chapter 5, we find a skillful preacher drawing in his hearers. Because Isaiah presents his message in chapter 5 in the words of a love song. And no sooner has he captured the attention of his audience than things take a tragic turn. Now, we're going to uh, cover the first part of chapter 5 under the heading From Romance to to Tragedy. It'd be great if you had the service outline in front of you so you can follow along. This is the first seven verses, which uh, details this this love song about the vineyard that Melissa read for us. Now, I heard Taylor Swift's song Love Story the other day, and for a change, I actually paid attention to the words. And I'm glad I did. I'll admit it's... uh, I think it's a great song. I really got caught up in the story. You know, where Romeo comes through against all odds and uh, he sweeps Juliet off her feet. And the best love songs, of course, are like that. They go from hopeless to hopeful and more. But tragically, the love song in Isaiah 5 actually goes the other way. It starts out bristling with hope, but it ends in utter hopelessness. So grab your Bible and follow with me from verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes, or in some translations, worthless grapes. From the first line, Isaiah captures us with a story. Someone he loves has a vineyard. And you know, this is the first hint that there's more to this song than meets the ear. But this beloved vineyard grower has carefully planted a vineyard 
He's chosen the right soil. He's prepared the ground. He's gone to Bunnings and he's bought the, the best plants and the best uh, topsoil and the best uh, fertilizer that he could find. He's even put in a security system in his vineyard. But somehow, inexplicably, instead of the best grapes, all his vineyard produces are wild grapes. Now, wild grapes are actually a thing. In many parts of the world, these uncultivated grapes actually grow like a weed. Their fruit is smaller than farmed grapes, and it's full of seeds, and it's quite sour to the taste. Um, as I was reading and uh, researching for this message, I, I read that there's actually a native wild grape that grows up in Arnhem Land. And they say it's quite sweet when you first bite into it, but then that changes to a burning sensation. Apparently it's harmless, but it doesn't sound very pleasant. And this is what's growing in this carefully planned and tended vineyard. It doesn't make sense. These grapes are no good for making wine or for eating, and it's a wasted harvest. And you know, for a moment there, Isaiah leaves this conundrum just hanging in the air. And he breaks the fourth wall to ask his audience what they think happened. Whether they think, you know, the vineyard owner maybe didn't do his job properly. I wonder what they would have said, you know, back in, back in Isaiah's day. This is quite a common way of doing things. And, and I'm sure people would have shouted out their ideas from the back of the crowd and, you know, put in their two cents worth about what he could have done differently. But what's clear is something must be done. The wild grapes are no good and the vineyard is an absolute disappointment. Well, we read what's going to be done in verse 5. Now, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Wow. Well, that started out reasonable, but it got pretty harsh pretty quick. I mean, he could have at least plowed it up and started again. Or maybe he could have sold the land and it could have been redeveloped. But then telling the clouds not to rain on it? I mean, who does this farmer think he is? But then Isaiah drops the bomb and he tells his hearers who and what the story of the vineyard is really about. Verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, the rest of this chapter really details what's wrong with the vineyard. This is our second point on the outline, if you've got it in front of you. What's wrong with the vineyard, the nation of Judah, God's people? And you know, as we read through it, it might just seem like another rehash of all these sins that we've been, we keep hearing about in chapters 1 through to 4. But the point is that the people still haven't heard it. They still don't get it. You know, that invitation was there back in chapter 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. But there's the invitation. They still haven't accepted it. They've taken one look at the invitation, they've screwed it up in a ball and chucked it in the bin. 
And in some ways, chapter 5 really reads like the last word on the matter. Now, the best way to make sense of this chapter is to see the repeated words and phrases. It's always a good idea to do this when we read the Bible, because the biblical writers, they repeat things when, when they want us to notice something important. And so I wonder if you heard things that were repeated when Melissa read it for us earlier. Firstly, you, we saw the word woe repeated six times. Uh, these are all specific charges against Israel for their sin. But you would have also heard the word therefore repeated four times. And these are the necessary consequences of God's judgment on Israel's sin. So that, that's how we're going to work through the, the verses 80, 8, 8 to 30 uh, with the six woes and then the four therefores. So let's have a look at those six woes. And the first one we find in verse 8, where God's people have got a preoccupation with property. Look with me at verse 8 of chapter 5. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. See, Judah has got a real estate obsession But it's not just the social and environmental impact that's the issue. The issue is actually their rejection of God's laws. We find that going on and on as as things go on. They've they've rejected the the word of God, the word of the Holy One. And specifically here, they've rejected God's laws about property ownership. So if we go back to God's law in Leviticus chapter 25, the Lord says to his people, The land, that's the promised land, shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. Leviticus 25, 23. And then the rest of that whole chapter is all about having a gracious and equitable real estate market in the promised land. I mean, it might sound ridiculous to us today, but if someone sold property, he had a whole year in which he could actually go back on that contract. I mean, that's crazy, but it was all about... Uh, the fact that the land actually belonged to God and not to anyone else. So here we see God's people have rejected his law and replaced it with a, a ravenous and oppressive accumulation of property. Well, the second woe comes up in verse 11, and it's an obsession with pleasure. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. See, these people have accumulated so much wealth for themselves that every day is one long party, and they're obsessed with pleasure. High-risk drinking is part of the prevailing culture. And their obsession with personal pleasure has pushed the law to the periphery. Verse 12, they have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. I guess a kind of you know, modern image of that is this massive party and the, you know, the, the drinks flowing and the, the, you know, a, a, a hot playlist is playing on Spotify through someone's Bluetooth speaker, but no one's going to stop the party and actually say grace before they eat. There is an obsession with pleasure. And, you know, how are they able to have these day-long parties? Well, we've read about it a bit earlier, that they're, they grind the poor into the ground. They use people and they exploit people to do their work for them so that they can just have one long party. 
It's the result of an obsession with pleasure. Well, the third woe is how they are locked into sin in verse 18. Sinful behavior has become so much a part of their daily lives that they're completely locked into it. They are harnessed to sin. Verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. You see, they, they couldn't carry on normal life as they knew it if they actually had to follow God's commands. It would cost them too much. But, on the other hand, a life of sin seems to be working better for them than obediently following God's law. So, well, who cares about God anyway? If he's so great, why doesn't he come and do something about it? It's the attitude of those who know that what they're doing is wrong, but actually couldn't care less. You know, if if God had to suddenly turn up, well, they, they might, you know, change their ways and do something. But, you know, for now, who cares? That's the first three woes. The next three come up in quick succession, starting with verse 20, with a manipulation of morality. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is about redefining or manipulating morality. It's taking things God has forbidden in his word and saying, oh, that's not really what the Bible says at all. It's, you know, it's, it's using the Bible and twisting it to justify the things that I want to do and I want to think and I want to be. And, you know, in today's day and age, ideas about sexual ethics and identity come to mind. The fifth one is in verse 25. Satisfaction in self-sufficiency. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. You know, this is the typical, I can figure it out all myself. I don't need God or the Bible. And I think it's ironic, considering the punishment of verse 13 and the reason for it. Verse 13 says, therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. They think they know, but they haven't got a clue. And sixthly and finally, look at verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. You see, the people of God are known more for their sin than for their relationship with the Lord. You go to the men of Judah if you want the best booze of the party, or if you're in trouble and you want you know, the cops off your back. And this, sadly, is the situation in Judah and Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. One commentator describes it like this, that in the year the king Uzziah died, which is when Isaiah's ministry seems to have begun, about 740 BC, the international scene was full of threats. And at home, too, things were far from well. The newfound wealth was not evenly distributed. It was concentrated in the hands of an economic elite who cared little for the have-nots beneath them. Deep fissures were opening up in Judean society as justice was bought and sold or simply disregarded and replaced by violent exploitation and repression. Religious observance continued but could no longer conceal the rot that had set in underneath. The creed that the Lord was king had become hollow. 
Now, we, we learned in chapter 2 how Judah had got to this point. And instead of walking in the light of the Lord, in 2 verse 5, they'd walked in the light of the surrounding nations instead. They were, they were learning life from the cultures around them instead of from the word of the Lord. And there's a warning here for us as the church in Australia today. We've got to keep this in mind as we read Isaiah. It isn't talking to foreign nations who have no relationship with the God of the Bible anyway. It's not talking to the people out there. It's talking to those who had a long history of God's care and blessing and promise and redemption. So when we read about these harsh indictments against an obsession with property and pleasure and an ignorance of the Lord and rejection of his ways, the warning is not for the world out there where these things are all too obvious. There is no place for self-righteously pointing the finger at other people. These are warnings for God's people in every age. It's for us today who are also in danger of following in the footsteps of the world around us. If God takes this kind of behavior among his people this seriously, we've got to be asking this question of ourselves as Christians. Where am I behaving just like the world around me? How have I bought into the Australian infatuation with property and failed instead to pursue contentment and generosity as a follower of Jesus should? How have I bought into the drinking culture of the world around me, wasting what God has blessed me with and losing control of myself rather than filling myself with God's word and spirit and being controlled by those things? Where have I become so locked into sinful practices and habits in my work or with my finances or at home or on the internet or how I entertain myself that I feel like I just can't actually be bothered from breaking away from them anymore? Is there any place where I've I've started to reinterpret the clear commands of Scripture? To give me license to do what I want and what feels right for me and what won't make me stand out in the crowd instead of what God actually requires of me. Are there places maybe where I've convinced myself that my abilities and my knowledge and my experience are all I need to get on in life? And I'll only call out to God if I really get stuck. Do I want people to know me because I'm the life of the party, or because I'm able to always get them out of a fix, more than being known as someone who knows God and walks in his light. Friends, the warning of this chapter is very serious. And this is what I meant when I started out by saying that God is not sentimental. Because no matter how far he's come with his own people, how much he's blessed them, cared for them, protected them, guided them, promised to them, led them, He's willing to destroy them for living like the world instead of living like his own people. And no amount of tender feelings will keep God from justly and decisively dealing with their sin. Well, what's God going to do? Well, we see four therefores repeated in chapter 5. The first one comes up in verse 13. And it points forward about 150 years to when Judah is judged by God and carried into exile in Babylon. The temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is reduced to a pile of rubble that's almost unrecognizable. Verse 13, Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. 
Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. And you know, there's an ironic contrast here about the hunger and thirst of the people of Jerusalem. Their appetites are for food and wine. Their appetite is not for the knowledge of the Lord and his word. In the previous verse, they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. So they fill themselves with food and wine and pleasure. They fail to fill their hearts and minds with the Lord and his word. So firstly, exile for ignorance. Secondly, death for pride. In verse 14, we find the prophecy that's that's playing again on the idea of appetites. But only this time, it's Sheol, the biblical place of the dead who's hungry. Verse 14. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Now, I hope you've, you recognize some of those verses because they come straight out of chapter 2 and 3 that we looked at last week. Remember, God will not stand for the glorification of human pride. He will not stand for human pride and arrogance. He will bring it low and he will prove himself to be the only one who deserves to be worshipped in the entire universe. So exile for ignorance, death for pride. Thirdly, consumed for corruption. Verse 24 gives us a picture of a nation being consumed for their corruption. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You see, they've rejected the Lord's word and his law. And the image then is of a plant that's got some sort of terminal disease because it wasn't feeding on the right plant food. It gets dry, the root rots, the flowers and petals turn to dust, and it withers to nothing. And the fourth and final therefore speaks of the utter devastation that God will bring upon his people for their sin. Verse 25, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Now, it's worth knowing that there there is actually a record of an earthquake in the time of King Uzziah, about uh, 760 BC. And Jewish historians in the Roman period, they record that this earthquake coincided with Uzziah's prideful assertion in the temple when, when he, towards the end of his reign, went into the temple and figured that he could be a great priest as well as a great king. And, and for his pride, God uh, uh, struck him with leprosy for the last years of his life. And apparently at the same time, there was this massive earthquake. We read about it at the very beginning of the book of Amos. And Amos was also a prophet around the time of Isaiah. His little book comes a bit later in the Old Testament. So Amos chapter 1 verse 1 says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, when, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And by the records we have, it was a devastating earthquake. 
Uh, it even made a hole in the temple roof. Now, what's interesting is that historians are divided on whether the earthquake actually took place. And the reason for that is that there is so much destruction evident in this part of the ancient Near East in the 8th century. And that's because, at the same time, the Assyrian army was racing across the ancient Near East, destroying everything in its path. And it's, uh, historians and archaeologists say it's actually hard to tell what was the result of an earthquake and what was the result of the Assyrian military campaign. And it's the destruction of the Assyrian army which Isaiah goes on to foretell in verse 26. The Lord will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent, and their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey and carry it off and none can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. We know that it's God whistling for Assyria because he says as much in chapter 7. I think it's an interesting image, you know, that God is is whistling for this massive, well-trained uh, well-armed, fearsome military machine. Actually, all, all the way through, you might have noticed God keeps getting referred to as the Lord of hosts. Uh, a literal way of saying that is the Lord of armies. Even though you've got this terrifying, massive army, the, 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 the foremost military power of the 8th century, God is still God over that army. It doesn't go anywhere that he doesn't tell it to go. And so he whistles for that army like someone whistles for their dog. And so this fearsome, well-armed, technologically advanced, well-trained military machine devastates Judah right up to the gates of Jerusalem in 701 BC. And as we get into chapter 7, we're going to find out a bit more about this whole event. But chapter 5 ends with this terrible pronouncement of judgment, and the lights go out, and darkness covers the whole land. Now, this chapter raises a whole lot of questions. And probably the most important question was posed by an English Bible teacher, asking, has Israel sinned away the grace of God? Now, as good Reformed believers, we we say, no, you can't sin away the grace of God. We trust that our salvation is entirely in God's hands and that once we're saved in Christ, nothing can snatch us from his hand. And I think that would be true. And yet this passage shows us a people who are loved and cared for by God, called by his name and given everything they needed to thrive as his people and yet still fell under his judgment. What do we make of that? Well, one thing we've got to do is face up to the fact that God takes sin incredibly seriously. And God doesn't let us off the hook because he's somehow sentimentally attached to us. God has to judge 
our sin one way or another. It has to be paid for. And, you know, I think if we're honest with ourselves, he takes our sin far more seriously than we do. I think that's one thing we've got to take away from chapter 5. But another thing we've got to know is, we're going to find this in the New Testament. Where Jesus picks up on this image of the vineyard. And I think it helps us to understand something crucial to the whole story uh, of which Isaiah 5 is just a part. You can find this story in Mark chapter 12. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. You might have heard it before. Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard owner who built a vineyard and left tenants in charge when he went away. And you know, the language in Mark chapter 12 is too similar to just being a coincidence. I'm convinced Jesus had Isaiah 5 in mind when he told this parable. And he was telling this parable to people who would have known their Bibles and recognized the references to Isaiah 5. So this vineyard owner, he builds a vineyard and he leaves tenants in charge and he goes away. But the tenants get greedy. And so when the owner sends servants back to get a sample of the produce, the tenants beat up the servants and they send them back empty-handed. And finally, in desperation, the vineyard owner sends his own son. What do the tenants do? Well, they're true to form. They kill the son in the hope that they can claim the vineyard for themselves. And listen to how Jesus finishes the parable. Mark chapter 12, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And friends, the point is that persistence in sin ultimately leads to the complete rejection of the Son, Jesus Christ, who is the only way we can ever be forgiven of our sin. Without the Son to take our punishment for us, we must take it ourselves and be punished forever. So, can you sin away the grace of God? Well, here's the bottom line. You can call yourself a Christian. You can come to church. You can pray You can read your Bible. You can be part of a small group. But if you ultimately choose your sin rather than Jesus, you are under God's judgment. And in fact, you've never truly known the grace of God shown to you in Christ in the first place. And you know, it might seem okay now. It might seem that life's pretty dandy and there's no urgency to change. But the Bible is clear. God is being patient and kind to you so that you will realize the danger you're in and turn to Christ. But he will not be patient forever. There will be a day of the Lord, as we learned in chapter 2, when the Lord will terrify and throw down human pride and he alone will be exalted as God. Where will you be on that day? Maybe you need to take stock today. And ask yourself the question, does my life show that I've been saved forever by Jesus? Or is my life actually no different from the people around me? You know, people like to, to quote the old Nirvana song, Come As You Are, saying, you know, as when you become a Christian, it's all about, okay, come as you are, God accepts you as you are. Now, that's true. But it was never come as you are and stay as you are person who stays as he is likely hasn't had God's 
God at work in, in his life in the first place. Friends, we mustn't forget that God will be completely justified in punishing forever those who claim to be his people but deny it by their lives. Because being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just about affirmation. It's not just about God patting us on the head and saying, Oh, I like you and I want you to be part of my family forever. It's not just about affirmation. It's about transformation. We do not come to a God who just loves us sentimentally. We come to a God who must judge sin and deal with sin in our lives, but who has graciously offered a way for us to be justified in his sight by being purified of our sin without being destroyed in the process. And that way is Jesus. And so, friends, it all comes down to what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps Jesus himself summed this up best in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What are you doing with the Son? Do you believe in Christ? Is God transforming you to be more like Christ? Or are you claiming a label that you have no right to claim? I said earlier that the fact that God is not sentimental is not just scary, but it's also good news. And it's good news because it means that God won't accept me on the basis of how much he likes me. Or reject me on the basis of how much he doesn't like me. Because God is not sentimental, he can actually deal with my sin completely and decisively in the Lord Jesus Christ. He can be completely just. And so his acceptance of me is not based on how much he likes me. It's based on how he has justified me in Christ. And I have to never worry about my sin coming up against me before God ever again. And so, friend, I want to challenge you today. What are you doing with Jesus? And if you say, yes, I'm trusting Jesus, my Lord and Savior, are you expecting him to change your life? Because remember, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How about we pray? And I'm going to leave a little bit of time where you can perhaps silently reflect in your own heart um, on these words from Isaiah chapter 5, these words from John 3, Mark 12. And think about, you know, what you need to do on hearing God's word like this today. Maybe today's the day where you need to admit that you're a sinner who deserves God's judgment and believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died for you to forgive you of your sin, and then confess him as your king. Take some time to to do business with God now, and in a couple of moments, uh, I'll lead us in prayer together.
Let's pray. Our Lord God Almighty, the Holy One, pray that you'd forgive us this morning for ever thinking that we can hold a relationship with you in one hand, but on the other hand, live exactly the way we always have, absolutely indistinguishable from the world around us. Father, please help us to come to Christ and expect to be transformed. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you can forgive our sin, past, present, and future. And Father, we pray that in your mercy you wouldn't just forgive us, but that you wouldn't leave us as we are, but that every day you would transform us to be more like Jesus and prepare us more and more for that wonderful, glorious eternity with you in heaven forever. Father, give us an eagerness and a joy about being transformed We thank you, Father, that you've promised to do this for us in Christ. Father, help us not to fool ourselves, but help us to trust in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.